Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. Our country feels like it's at a crossroads. How we view and interact with each other is changing our nation. Today, First Pres Associate Pastor Tim Shaw challenges us with the sermon called Free from a Single Story. Hi, I'm Tim Shaw, one of the pastors here at First Pres. And today we're continuing our sermon series on the core values of our church. So that means it's quiz time. The first letter of each core value spells the word paths. So let's see if you can remember the five values that shape our discipleship pathway. The first word starts with P. And P stands for something we wait for and long for and want at Christmas. Good guess, really good guess, Jenny, but not correct. Uh, what we want at Christmas time is what we wait for as we long for during Advent, the season leading up to Christmas, is the presence of God's Holy Spirit. So P stands for presence. We don't just want to know a bunch of information about God. We want to know by personal experience the real presence of God in our lives. So P stands for presence. A stands for, Pastor Dan talked about this core value last week. Do you remember what he said? Don't you hate it when the pastor asks you questions like that? And the only thing you can remember are the funny stories that they told? I sometimes can't even remember the main points of my own messages. Well, that was pretty authentic of me, right? Authenticity is the second core value we have as a church. I've discovered that when I'm honest with God and other trusted family members and friends about what's really going on in my life, it's then that Jesus meets me right where I am and comes with a load of help. So presence, authenticity, and the third value starts with the letter T, and it doesn't stand for trouble. The following Jesus can and has gotten lots of people in trouble, Sometimes the kind of good trouble that turns our world right side up. Trouble is not one of our core values of our church, but it's inevitable that the gospel is going to encourage people to think deeply about the great questions of life. Life's meaning, our purpose. The gospel is a worldview that will challenge all of us to think about what we believe. So the third core value of our church is thoughtfulness. We want to be a thoughtful people. We want to be people who are willing to be challenged as we consider the profound implications of following Jesus. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, a key and a lock are both complex. And if, if a key fits a lock, you know it is the right key. While at its heart there is a simplicity to the message of the gospel, there is also a profound complexity to Christian theology. And that is a good thing because our lives are also complex. The more I understand the gospel, the more I realize how it speaks to every part of my life. So presence, authenticity, thoughtfulness, and our fourth core value starts with the letter H. Pastor Dan is planning to write a best-selling book about this core value, and he's convinced it will be the greatest book ever written. When the audio version comes out, I'm sure Pastor Dan won't mumble about being humble. Humility is our fourth core value, and we couldn't be more proud of that fact. Seriously, 
Humility should be our response to all that God has done and is doing for us. How could we want to live in any other way when we realize that the God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand came to this planet in Jesus to give his life that we might have life? Humility is the only appropriate response. So presence, authenticity, thoughtfulness, humility, and finally, the last core value we have for our church begins with the letter S, as in Shaw, which is my last name. My father's parents emigrated from Scotland to the U.S. at the beginning of the 20th century. I even have a Scottish flag flying in my office. I love Scotland. I've been there a number of times. This is a picture of what guys in Scotland sometimes wear. I took that picture at the military tattoo at Edinburgh Castle. I don't think I could pull that look off. Tartan trousers, not going to happen. Real Scotsmen look like this. So one day, I'm planning to get me a kilt, because kilts are awesome. Our church's fifth core value is not Shaw, though I feel highly valued by you. The fifth core value is the one I want to focus on today. The S in paths is for service. I personally think that this core value gathers up all the other values and makes them a reality in our families, in our communities, and in our world. In a moment, I'll have more to say about our God who is the great servant and calls us to live a life of self-sacrificing service. So presence, authenticity, thoughtfulness, humility, and service. Those are the five core values of First Pres. Before we dive into a discussion about the fifth value, let's pray together. Oh God, we come to you today, coming to your word. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit uh, wherever this worship service is being watched. We pray that you would meet with each one of us, that you would be our teacher, that you would guide us into your very heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God wants our lives to have an impact for good in the world. He wants us to be people who influence the people in our lives in such a positive way that they want to get to the bottom of what makes us tick. The history of the world, in so many ways, is a story of influence. Leadership is about influence, and everyone can have influence on someone else. Nikki Gumbel from Holy Trinity Brompton in London, that's HTB, that's where Alpha comes from, he once said this, sociologists tell us that even the most introverted individual will influence 10,000 other people during his or her lifetime. We all influence one another in all sorts of ways, from what to have for lunch and what films to watch, to more important matters of truth and ethics. Nikki writes, my life has been influenced by so many people, my parents, teachers, friends, and family. Just as I have been influenced by others, inevitably what I do and say will influence others for good or ill. As the African proverb puts it, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night with a mosquito. The mosquito makes a difference in our lives in a very irritating way. But when it comes to our capacity to make a difference in the lives of others, the principle is the same. You can take steps to stop a great injustice. You can be a voice for truth. Your kindness can save a life. Every person matters. 
So how can we maximize the influence we have and use that influence for good? Well, at the heart of what we as followers of Jesus are called to be and to do is to do the kind of things that we see Jesus doing. That means we are called to serve. Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11 is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Along with John 13, where we watch Jesus wash his disciples' feet, Philippians 2 stands at the heart of my Christian faith. I want to encourage you to read it for yourself and consider its great implications for our lives. Philippians 2 contains the ones and the zeros of the Christian life. All computer software is written on the basis of ones and zeros. I think everything we are called to be and to do flows out of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. That passage of scripture is like the musical notes that make up a great symphony. Every aspect of the Christian life is built on the servant heart of God. In John 13, just before his arrest, his sham trial and crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples got ready to have a meal together, and suddenly Jesus got up from the table, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. Apparently no one had offered that common courtesy to the group. Here's a painting by Ford Maddox Brown of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. I'm fascinated by the facial expressions of each person around the table. Peter's the older man on the right. He seems totally confused and embarrassed. He's trying to figure out what Jesus is doing. Washing feet was the job of a slave. It certainly wasn't the job of a rabbi, let alone the king of the universe. And yet, here's Jesus washing Peter's feet. Let's be honest, people's feet can be gross. Even 21st century feet, they can be hairy like the foot of a hobbit. They can be dirty and smelly, with toenails cracking under the load of fungus underneath them. That's what feet are like today. But feet in Jesus' day had to be a hundred times worse. Jesus and his fellow first century travelers wore sandals. They walked on dirty, dusty roads where cows and horses and goats left their calling cards, and people stepped in all of that as they walked from place to place. It was to feet like that that Jesus turned his attention on the night before he gave his life for the sins of the world. That night, knowing what awaited him the next day, Jesus washed his disciples' stinky feet. As disgusting foot aromas filled the house, Jesus knelt down and cleaned the crud from the streets that was caked on his disciples' feet. Caked and baked on crud will not deter Jesus. He grabs a towel, he stoops down, and cleans these guys' feet. Every last one of them. He does that to point to what he's about to do for the world on the cross. There is nothing that we have done in our lives that will keep Jesus from forgiving us. He will not turn away from cleaning us up if we let him. On the cross of Jesus, we are watching the God of the universe serve humanity. In Jesus, God is kneeling as Christ is nailed to the cross. Our God, who is a servant, served you and me on the cross of Christ. Jesus serves us first before he tells us to go and do as he has done. Be servants to one another as I have been to you. That's what Jesus tells his first disciples as he stands up having washed each person's grimy feet. Our God is a God who kneels. Look at the one who has all power in the universe. Look at what he did. Jesus redefined power for us 
as followers of Jesus, as ones who are citizens of the kingdom of God, we must now rework our understanding of power. We tend to think that power is in limited supply and is something we need to compete over. The world teaches us to use whatever power we might have to try and control others and get what we want. Jesus tells us that is not the way of the gospel. Jesus turns our understanding of power upside down. In fact, Jesus turns things right side up because he now says that power has been given to us in unlimited supply. And we receive that power when he gives us his Holy Spirit. We don't need to use power to coercively get what we want. According to Jesus, power has been given to us to empower others. We don't use power to destroy, but to bring life. And that is a statement that will trouble many who have power in our world today and want to hold on to it. It should trouble all of us. In the kingdom of God, power is not about control. It's about empowering and serving others. I feel like I'm closest to the heart of Christ when I'm encouraging and supporting and cheering on someone else. Pastor Dan talked about this a few weeks ago when he spoke about humility. As C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. I completely agree with that statement. But I also want to say that humility is more than thinking of yourself less. To be a humble person, we must take a healthy portion of the energy we would normally just burn on ourselves and invest it in the lives of others for their benefit. When God gives me even the smallest glimpse into what he is doing in the life of someone else, when I even get the smallest sense of God's excitement for what he is doing in someone else, it can be like an electric charge in my mind and heart. It's in those moments when I'm building up someone else, particularly when I'm building them up in something that I actually want to be really good at, and they're actually better at it than I am. It's then that I feel closest to the servant heart of Christ. Jesus Christ has served us and is serving us. He wants to set us free to be his servants who will be people who can encourage and build up others. This, I believe, is what is at the center of the Christian life. It's at the center of the Christian life because servanthood is at the heart of who our God is. So whether you believe it or not, God has given each one of us a sphere of influence. What is your sphere of influence? To be an agent of influence for the kingdom of God, we are called by God to serve others. We are surrounded by good people who are living lives of sacrificial service, people who are serving in harm's way as a part of the military, police officers, firefighters, and other first responders, healthcare professionals, educators who are working hard to figure out how to teach their students in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. There are people who are caring for young children or are kapuna, people caring for the earth, farmers, gardeners, grocery store employees. I could go on and on. Dick Halverson, who served as a chaplain of the U.S. Senate, once said this about being a servant. He said a pastor, like me, he said is called to be a servant to the servants, that's you, of the servant, that's Jesus. A pastor is called to be a servant of the servants of the servant. Our God is a servant, and that is who he calls us to be. Okay, let's apply this core value of service and what I think is one of the quirkiest passages in the book of Luke. 
Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 56. And arguments started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Okay, right out of the gate, these guys are already off the rails. They're arguing about who is Jesus' number one disciple. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For whoever is least among you all is the greatest. Well, there's some good trouble for you right there. Whoever is the least among you all is actually the greatest. Now watch what happens next. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Many of you already know that there is a, a lot of historic tension and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. So when the Samaritans in this village heard that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews, they said, we're closed. You're not welcome here. When the disciples James and John saw this, now watch this. When James and John, these brothers, discovered that a Samaritan village didn't want Jesus and his band of followers in their town, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? What? Okay, I've got a couple of questions here. When did James and John begin to think that they had the right to set whole villages ablaze? And when did they begin to think that that power was available to them? When did that kind of thinking start? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then his disciples and Jesus, they went to another village. That is a very interesting passage of scripture from the gospel according to Luke. To be honest, sometimes I wonder what Jesus talked about with his heavenly father when he would go off by himself to pray. What would he pray about when he was off on his own out of the earshot of his disciples? Would a question raised by James and John be something he would have talked with his father about? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume this village and everything in it, including every man, woman, child, and animal, because they didn't want us to stay in their town? I can imagine Jesus talking with his heavenly father about that one. Friends, you don't have a rage-filled reaction like the one James and John had unless you've formulated a single story in your heart and mind about a group of people that somehow justifies in your own mind a response like that. James and John seem to have a single story about the Samaritans. It's a story they'd probably nurtured and curated for many years with a lot of help from their culture, from their leaders. That is not the reaction we should have to being turned away from a Holiday Inn. Their reaction is completely out of proportion to what happened. 
These two guys think these people deserve to have essentially a bomb dropped on their village because someone told them that they can't spend the night in their town. Friends, we have people in our country right now, and maybe we're some of them, who are coming completely unglued. It may be just when we're watching the news, but some of us are raging. And you know what? I think that rage can sometimes be the fruit of having a single story for another group of people. Some of us have formulated a single story about another political party, and we have rehearsed that single story to ourselves because that story has been stoked by fear, and that fear has erupted in anger. There is a great danger in having a single story about another person or group of people. I want to illustrate what I mean by having a single story by thinking together about my home state of California. When you think of California, what comes to mind? Is it anything like this? These images are from where I went to high school in Southern Orange County. My friends and I sailed on the bay and just offshore in a Hobie cat. We body surfed at Big Corona Beach. We hung out and played volleyball in this idyllic part of California. That's my hometown. I think that it's a pretty accurate picture of that part of Southern California culture, but it's only one story. There is a, there's a truth in that story, but it's only a single story. Southern California is a complex community of cultures. Northern California is its own unique collection of cultures and stories. Here's a hot cultural tip. You can use this the next time you travel to the Golden State. One of the ways you can tell if someone is from Southern California or Northern California is if they use the word the when talking about highways or public transportation. If you're driving from Newport Beach to LA in Southern California, you're probably going to drive on the 405 freeway. If you're telling your friend in Oakland, in the Bay Area, in Northern California, that you'll be driving up to see them from San Jose, don't say you'll be taking the 880 or riding the BART. It's just 880 or BART. There's no the in Northern California when you talk about highways or public transportation. So I've now just expanded your understanding of the California story with that one cultural fact. We can have a single story about Southern California beach culture. It's an accurate story, but it's just incomplete. California is a wonderful place filled with diverse communities and cultures, and to think it could be summed up with a single story is simply not the case or helpful. For a variety of reasons, we are well-trained in forming single stories for the complex lives of other people. Sometimes there is truth in that single story, but what we tend to forget is that it's not the whole story when we primarily view a person or group or nation through the lens of a single story, that shapes and controls the way we think about that person or that group of people. And let's be honest, sometimes we can refuse to entertain any information that may challenge our single story. Clinging to a single story is often how we do great interpersonal damage. You and I immediately know that having a single story for someone else, a single narrative for a group of people, a race, a nation, is wrong. The minute we sense someone has formed a single story about us. When we sense the possibility that someone has reduced our lives to a single story that they have created, our tendency is to react and object. Wait a minute, 
you don't know me. In an increasingly volatile election cycle, I want to encourage us to pay attention. If we aren't already aware of what is going on across the political spectrum, I want to encourage us to become aware of the single stories that we are forming. These narratives prevent us from true engagement and relationship with others, especially those who are from different backgrounds and with whom we might disagree. I believe Jesus wants to liberate us to be able to embrace people who are different from us. I believe Jesus wants to develop, help us develop a deeper capacity to explore complexity and see difference and complexity as gifts and not threats. Our ability to embrace other people's full stories is the foundation of our capacity to love them and serve them as Christ commands. Okay, let's go back to our story in Luke. Jesus rebukes James and John because they wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village just because that town refused to welcome Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus basically says to these two guys, that's not who we are. I can imagine Jesus turning to these two guys and reminding them first, that is not who he is. And second, raining fire from heaven is not something he'd come to do. So Jesus rebuked them. This is a very strong word in Greek. It means to assess a penalty. Jesus pulled a yellow card on these guys, and he may have been ready to throw a red card at them. He reprimanded them. He admonished them. This is not who we are. Now look at what he did next. The text simply says that they went on to the next town. They just moved on to the next village. That is evidence in the life of Jesus, of a person who knows who he is and what he has been called to do. I sometimes wonder what it was like for Jesus as he walked along with these guys. After all this time he'd spent with them, they still didn't understand who he was and what he came to do. I think it would be fair for Jesus to wonder sometimes about me. After all the time I've spent with him and he with me, I sometimes still don't get who he is and who I am called to be. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to give his life for the sins of the world, and these two guys and their companions are arguing about who is the greatest and deciding which communities they were going to ask God to blow up. To be honest, I think many of us have thought about calling down fire from heaven. I know I've had my moments. Our nation is increasingly divided as people reduce each other to a single story. That single story sometimes built on and stoked by fear, sometimes partial information, and even outright falsehoods has left people screaming at each other in supermarkets and on street corners. And that anger-fueled single story about others has turned neighbors and family members into opponents and even enemies. And this escalating rhetoric, often fueled by single stories, has already led to physical violence, destruction, and even death during this difficult year. But I believe Jesus has a different way. And will we recognize that better way and follow it? This better way does include the ability to hold deep convictions and to share them with other people. Jesus' way is not about finding the gooey, mushy center where nothing matters. His different way has to do with how we engage one another when we discover our different convictions. 
Here are some habits I'm trying to cultivate in my own life in order to find greater freedom from the tyranny of a single story. Being set free from having a single story is the only way I will be able to begin to love and serve others as Jesus calls me to. First, I want to learn how to be more curious about other people. I want to set aside my preconceived notions of who they are. I want to grow in my capacity to listen to other people's stories. I want to take the time to let them speak for themselves. Can I see how the world looks from their eyes? Second, I want to be more present with others, particularly with those who might have very different life experiences than mine. I want to be willing to come close to the realities faced by others and be willing to learn from them. The capacity to come close to others is a function of how secure I feel I am in Christ. Jesus was not threatened by being turned away from that Samaritan village. He knew who he was and what he was called to do. That's why he could easily spend time with all kinds of people and why so many people found him so engaging. We can't get close to others when we're filled with fear and when we try to defend ourselves by stoking anger against them. Those two emotions are closely linked. When we are afraid, we believe that our anger will protect us. Third, I want to cultivate a more vivid imagination of what might be possible when we abandon having only a single controlling story for another person. I believe new possibilities can, be, can happen. Uh, unthought of solutions can be uncovered when we lay down our propensity to write a single story for one another and embrace the differences and complex beauty of another person, race, culture, or nation. A transformed world starts with transformed relationships. This is a different pathway that Jesus is offering us, but will we pause long enough to consider it? You may have heard this story about a man who stood in a metro station in Washington, D.C. and started to play the violin. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. It was the morning rush hour. People who reviewed the closed circuit video from the metro station estimated that thousands of people went through the station, most of them on their way to work while he played. After the first three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed down, briefly seeming willing to set aside his agenda for a few minutes. But that only lasted a few seconds, and then he was hurrying on his way. About a minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman, who was probably on her way to work, threw the money in his violin case without stopping. A few minutes later, someone else stopped and leaned against the wall to listen. But soon the man looked at his watch and started to head on his way. He was probably late for work. I'm not surprised by this at all, but one person who paid the most attention to this man playing the violin was a three-year-old boy. His mother didn't have the time or the interest to let her son stop and listen to the violinist. She hurried the little boy along as the child was ushered out of the metro station. As he was ushered out, he kept turning his head to watch the musician. This experience was repeated by several other children. All the parents, without exception, force their kids to move on. As Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him, then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, 
And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For whoever is least among you all is the greatest. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 people gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected $32. Only one person recognized the fact that the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians in the world. In that metro station, he played one of the most intricate pieces of music ever written, with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before his, he played in the metro station, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston where the average cost of a seat was $100. Writing about this concert in the metro station, the Washington Post concluded their article with a comment and some questions. In a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize the talent in an unexpected context? One of the possible conclusions from this experience could be, if we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written, how many other things are we missing? Jesus has a different way for us to follow. It's a better way that demonstrates the great beauty of the gospel of Christ. To be able to serve others as Christ commands, we need to experience freedom from having a single story about other people, groups, and nations. Are we in danger of missing the heart of Jesus? Or are we going to embrace his way and follow our God who is the greatest servant of all? Each one of us has a sphere of influence. And if we want to influence our world as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom, we must discover and follow the way of Jesus. Is this going to be easy? No, it isn't. Is it still a way worth pursuing? Yes, it is. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are writing a new story in our lives and that you want to liberate us from having a single story about ourselves or others. Set us free. Calm our hearts. Deliver us from the anger that can overpower our lives and cause us to hurt others. As we hold deep convictions, as we have concerns about our nation and world, help us make the good news of the gospel our greatest hope. Lead us to be agents of your good kingdom in our families, friendships, workplaces, communities, nation, and in our world. And Jesus, I also want to pray for anyone who might want to say yes to you for the very first time today. I know you are reaching out to people watching this worship service and you are inviting them to commit their lives to you. I know you want to liberate us to live a new life filled with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Friends, if that is you, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer that says three things to God. Sorry, thank you, and please. So if you want to commit your life to Jesus right now, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Lord, I am sorry for the ways that I have lived for myself. I'm sorry for the things that I've done to hurt others and injure myself. Please forgive all of my sins. Thank you for forgiving me completely 
and giving me the gift of your Holy Spirit. I humbly ask that you would fill me up with yourself. I want to know your presence in my life today and every day. I want to live with an authenticity, thoughtfulness, and humility that will draw people to you. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life. I give you my life. And I want to now live to bring glory to the name of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. And amen. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to connect with you and help you get started on your journey with Jesus. Just hit the yes button in the chat area that asks, would you like to commit your life to Christ? We are so excited that you have said yes to Jesus. And now let me offer you this blessing. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceedingly great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory and honor both now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen. We love you. We miss you. We want you to have a great week. See you next week. Aloha. People, their thoughts and cultures are far more complex than the one dimension we often assign to them. Take the time starting today to dig deep into the different aspects and facets of all the people you encounter in Jesus' name. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Normally, we meet Sundays at our Ko'olau campus or at The Vine in Kaka'ako, but for now, you can find the entire church service streamed online on the church website, fpchawaii.org. For our virtual church service, click the online church box at our regular church service times, Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.11, and Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. at thevinehonolulu.org. Be sure to check your email for links to sermons, church news and updates, and daily devotionals. If you have any questions or needs, you can always reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2020 and produced by the media ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.